Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Build Podcast. I'm Kyle Poyer, VP of Market Strategy here at OpenView, where I help software companies accelerate growth and master my favorite area, pricing and packaging. That's why this season on Build, we're talking all about the art and science of pricing. Each week, I sit down with operators and experts to hear their pricing insights and experiences firsthand and answer some of our listeners' most burning pricing questions. Now on with the show. On today's episode, I caught up with Abde Tambawala, the recent head of business strategy, operations, and monetization at Atlassian. We discuss why even extremely successful companies may benefit from a pricing change, how to create a framework for pricing decisions, and how Atlassian's product-led growth strategy influences their pricing. Abde, thanks for joining the Build Podcast. Could you give listeners a quick overview about yourself and your background? Thanks, Kyle. Firstly, for having me over. I have really enjoyed your past podcast, and the knowledge your guests have shared is super valuable. So big shout out to you and your team and the awesome guests. Having said that, I'm super excited to share some of my learnings. And as for my background, I'm a techie at heart and love building and taking to market technology, which solves customer pain points. I've been fortunate to have worn a few different hats over my career, from building products at both large and small companies, to my time in consulting, helping companies monetize their innovations, to most recently, my role at Atlassian, where I've helped build the BizOps function with the goal to make better decisions faster as Atlassian scaled in size and its offerings. Pricing in SaaS is, you know, relatively new function. How did you get started in that world? Yeah, I mean, honestly, I stumbled upon pricing actually through some of my key failures and learnings from my days back in product. So as a product manager, I witnessed firsthand the right and the wrong way of doing monetization. My key learning was that product managers should treat pricing and pricing itself should be treated in the same customer-focused way, which is applied to building products in the first place. Taking a customer view to pricing that's leading with understanding customers' willingness to pay not only helps with successful monetization down the line, but also helps prioritize what you build. So in my view, that is the essence of pricing, understanding your customer needs and working back from there. I got fascinated with this approach and took this further to apply at 22 high-growth SaaS companies at my time at Simon Kucher & Partners. And that was one common thread across all of these companies, that pricing worked really closely with product, marketing, sales, finance, bringing all of the different customer viewpoints in and building from there. Even over the past two years at Atlassian, I've been working on building the same mindset across the entire portfolio of products we have through the BizOps team. And you know, you mentioned you spent time in both consulting and in operating roles. You know, we actually got to know each other through both of our time in consulting. For people that are maybe not as familiar, like how do you compare these two types of jobs? Both these roles from a technical skill set standpoint and the concepts which we applied back in consulting on monetization and analyzing customer behavior, they're very applicable in the consulting environment and also in the operating role. I think the biggest difference is in the setting of the role itself. So for consulting projects, they were typically pretty well-defined. I mean, they were defined around mandates where the organization was already bought into the need to fix some things or to do them differently. There is lesser the need of education and buy-in around the problem itself. Whereas in an operating role, especially if you're in a company who's doing already pretty well, there is a need to frame the problem and in some ways continuously evaluate opportunities to disrupt yourself before somebody else disrupts you. So it's a classic innovator's dilemma situation. 
Now, on the flip side, in consulting, there is almost always a rush and an urgency to fight the fire. Whereas if it is set up correctly in an operating role, you can set it up right and you can be a lot more thoughtful about it. I think in terms of similarities, customer-led view applies to both sort of, you know, the consulting projects and in operating roles. In operating roles, you tend to collaborate and lean in more on your cross-functional counterparts. So you work a lot more closely and leverage your sister teams, so to speak, analytics, customer research, sales, advocacy teams, finance. Now, one commonality between both consulting and operating role is it's super crucial to bring all of these different teams together and bring them along on the journey, on the process. So, I mean, be it product, marketing, customer experience, finance, it's super important that everybody's bought in on the process you're following and how you arrived at the final recommendation so that the team can rally behind you and support to operationalize it. And I want to follow up on the point you just made about, you know, in an operating role, a lot of the work is actually figuring out how to disrupt the company before it gets disrupted and framing the problem versus in consulting. The problem's already been framed and it's become a hair on fire problem. And when you're working with some extremely successful companies like Atlassian that are you know, widely known as exemplars kind of in the SaaS world. How have you really been able to go about driving a change, especially a pricing change, when the business is so successful? As Simon Kushan Partners had worked with Atlassian prior to joining Atlassian full-time about two years ago, pricing changes or monetization changes largely fall in two buckets, right? Especially when it comes to companies like Atlassian, which have a large portfolio of offerings. And for both of these, I mean, the treatment is slightly different. The first one is company-level monetization strategy or philosophies. These are broader view of how company monetizes and some of the underlying philosophies behind that. The goal is not to change these multiple times. You set it up with a lot of upfront research, thought, and then that sort of, you know, becomes your baseline. So examples of things which fall in over here are whether you publish your entire price list or not. For example, I mean, you know, for Atlassian, we believe in open pricing. This aligns to the company's values of openness and all pricing is online. Everything is programmatically discounted. All customers get the same discounts. Other example of that would be setting up your primary metric for monetization, whether it is active users or it's flat tiers. Of course, I mean, you can add secondary metrics over time, but the primary meter is something which you wouldn't change very often. Where you sit in the price value matrix. For Atlassian, given the dominant go-to market, being self-serve, being on the high value, low price was a determined strategy. And then last but not the least, the overall packaging architecture, right? I mean, whether you're going to go with good, better, best or vertical based, how are you going to segment your packages? These are some of the things which for a company like Atlassian, which has 13 products, we thought about that at a macro or a company level and set philosophies up front. And obviously, there was a lot of work which went in that. For projects like those, my team worked really closely with the founders and the C-suite to sponsor those projects and champion those recommendations. Because once they are set, a lot of the other changes which we make in terms of pricing, packaging at a product level will in some ways follow some alignment with the overall company goals. So then the second part of it, which is the product level pricing and packaging strategies, need to be evaluated continuously and optimized as the product evolves adapt to the changing customer needs, and as overall the competitive landscape keeps changing. Now, examples of what falls in this bucket are the exact price points, right? So how do you optimize the price points, adding secondary meters as you add more features and functionalities? What features go exactly in what packages? These are things which need to be optimized at a pretty regular cadence. 
Now for product level pricing changes, since these are iterative and they are in quick response to sort of changing landscape, it is super important and it's actually beneficial to be a little more agile over there. The way we drive pricing changes at that place is actually working very closely with the head of products and get approvals and decisions made at that level. So they are empowered to make those changes at a much lesser level of scrutiny. And, you know, speaking tactically, what tips do you have for others who maybe want to convince their CEO why they should make big scale pricing change? Yeah, I mean, before answering that question, I mean, the first thing is you want to make sure that your CEO and the C-suite is actually pretty closely tied in on some of the biggest monetization and pricing changes you make. It is probably the most important lever your business has. It is extremely cross-functional and it touches multiple teams, marketing, product, finance, operations, sales. It should have the attention of your C-suite and CEO. So that's one. And second, I'm, you know, convincing that team to make pricing changes. You would have often heard that pricing changes directly impacts your bottom line, right? So, you know, you make a dollar improvement in pricing, it directly reflects in your profitability, which is absolutely true. But I believe it actually even goes one step further in terms of pricing strategy. Because the way you charge is an expression of the value your product provides. For example, Slack's pricing model right, was pretty disruptive. They started charging by active users, which totally disrupted the status quo at that time. And Slack could then take the high ground of fair pricing. And it changed the view of how customers perceive Slack versus any of the other alternatives. For people that are new to pricing changes, how do you even know if there is an opportunity to change prices? Like, How do you diagnose that in a business? Pricing happens to be one of those topics where a lot of folks within the company have an opinion on it. And frankly, good ideas can stem from various places. At Atlassian, we are extremely rooted in data and customer feedback. So folks on my team work closely with the analytics teams, that's marketing, product, and revenue analytics on KPIs, and keep a lookout for opportunities and even hotspots, areas of improvement. We take a pulse from the customer-facing functions, and at Atlassian, it's mainly the advocacy teams, the customer advocacy teams, on a regular cadence. Almost for all pricing projects, they are structured in sort of three phases. The phase one, which we call the hypothesis generation or the design phase. So this is where the ideas come together, using historical data and inputs from the customer-facing teams. And typically, we culminate this phase in a design workshop where we are listing out and sort of prioritizing what are some of the areas we want to go after. And also, we come up with some ideas around how we would solve for it. Then that actually flows into the second phase, which is focusing on validating or invalidating some of these hypotheses. And typically, we do that through first-hand market research, the customer interviews, focus groups, surveys in some cases, A-B tests or limited region tests in some cases, given the volume of our business. And then last but not the least, taking all of that data and what we have found through the validation process, bringing it back into an economic analysis for either the product or for the company, which will help form recommendations. So that's sort of the overall process we follow. You know, the idea is to keep eyes and ears open, both from a data standpoint and from a customer feedback standpoint. And I can talk a little more in terms of how we have structured the team to help be that eyes and ears. I think in a lot of SaaS companies, the Salesforce is front and center on the ground talking to customers and gets real feedback. 
when they're pitching price point, you can get a reaction from a prospect. And it's a different experience when it's a self-service business and you have really programmatic pricing, then it's, you know, I would think a much more data-driven process, but you still need to rely on the experience of people that are actually out working with customers. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, data tells you a good story, but then there is always a better story behind that data when you talk to customer advocacy teams or sales teams, or I mean, you know, even doing first-hand customer research, right? Riding on some of the sales calls can also be super beneficial. You know, one thing we've talked about is many SaaS companies out there start with one good hit that, you know, takes them to a certain level in their growth, and they start to add more products to the portfolio over time. How do you think about pricing and monetization around that stage of adding more products? I think the general concepts of setting up the monetization strategy, whether it's one product or multiple products in the portfolio, I think the general concepts apply. And let me put it this way, right? I mean, I think if you have additional products in your portfolio, it gives you additional levers to play with and apply different monetization strategies. So step one, I think is common if it's a one product company or a multiple product company. You start with customer value, the competitive landscape. You determine what features in the new offering through differentiators and what is the value add to customers over the next best alternative. This alongside with the company level monetization strategy, which we just spoke about, should help determine the standalone pricing for that product, be it the first product or the second or third product in the portfolio. Now, depending on the overall strategy and goals, we can further optimize pricing packaging for the entire portfolio. What I found helpful for building a portfolio around the core offering is to think about the additional products which the company builds or acquires to help with one of the following. So one, I mean, it could serve as a cross-sell from the core product. So it becomes a great companion offering, sort of like better together. And then you can apply some of the bundling concepts over there. For Atlassian, a great example is Jira and Confluence, right? Where Jira is the dominantly land product and Confluence becomes an amazing companion product for everybody who's using Jira to manage their software lifecycle or manage the flow of code. They are using Confluence for a lot of the documentation around it. This actually helps create a competitive moat around your core offering. The second way to think about it is it could help further open top of the funnel for your core product. Now for Atlassian, Bitbucket does that really well because if you think about it, Jira is used by software teams to better manage their workflows, whereas Bitbucket is used by the same software teams when they start writing the code. So it's one level upstream. So having a higher volume of folks using Bitbucket makes a natural flow into Jira. The third one, it could help solve similar problems for different segments of customers. In Atlassian's example, Jira is more for software and technical teams. Trello does it for marketing, product management, and other teams. So it does pretty much similar things. It does workflow management for teams outside of software. Similarly, Jira Service Desk, which is an offshoot of Jira, does similar things what Jira does, but for the IT segment for customer support, both internal and external. And when you think about some of those kind of adjacent or new product opportunities, how do you experiment to find product market price fit for some of those new products, especially when it's in a business that might be totally new to the company? I mean, you know, probably I'll answer this question in two separate buckets, right? I mean, the first one, a lot of our learnings and insights have come from observing how our customers use our existing products and some of the pain points and what are the customizations or what are the add-ons they're trying to use along with our core product to solve further needs. Jira Service Desk is a classic example of that. So our original product, Jira, which was for software teams, 
when we observed the behavior, what we found was some of the software teams who also sat along with IT were retooling Jira and creating custom workflows over there to actually manage their service desk. So that was a key insight for us. That actually helped us think through getting to that side of the market and building a product offering which is more customized to IT. In terms of looking at a totally new segment or a white space, Trello is a great example, right? I mean, with Jira, we knew that it has all of the bells and whistles. And with obviously the bells and whistles comes some amount of complexity, which the software teams were very used to handling. But when we looked at the business teams, we created a line of product, which is called Jira Core, which was a simplified version of Jira. And we saw that resonating pretty well. But then when we dug deeper into it, we wanted to further simplify the product. And Trello became a really good tool over there. Trello is a great example of getting into an adjacent market, which does not have as much of an overlap with your existing base, but solves similar pain points. And I want to change gears a little bit. So in your most recent role, you're head of BizOps at Atlassian. Not every company has a central BizOps function. What was that group responsible for? Yeah, at Atlassian, the BizOps team actually grew from the monetization function. And I realized this may be a little bit unique. But this helped us form a lot of our guiding principles and charter. Fundamentally, we believe that monetization and product strategy are yin and yang, and they should be thought of in conjunction. So the charter of the BizOps team today is twofold. One, to help build strong businesses around Atlassian products. And this obviously has a lot of flavors around monetization, revenue, and stuff like that. The second part of the charter is to help make better business decisions faster. Now, you can think of the BizOps role almost like a pyramid. And I mean, just so that if you can visualize it, a pyramid with four levels. The very base of the pyramid is grounded in KPIs across the funnel. So BizOps leads on my team work closely with our analytics and FP&A counterparts to closely monitor the health of the funnel and highlight any areas of opportunities or hotspots. At Atlassian, we use the PIRIT metrics. So the funnel, the way we define it is acquisition, activation, revenue, retention, and referral. This base of the pyramid becomes a really good feeder into strategic projects, which is the second level of the pyramid, where we would go after more opportunities. And typically, these opportunities fall within categories of monetization, improving engagement, improving activation. And then BizOps team will form a smaller tiger team with cross-functional counterparts to go and solve for these problems. Now switching gears a little bit and going all the way to the peak of the pyramid. The peak of the pyramid is what we call as the long-term strategy. This is how we envision the next three to five years to pan out. This exercise is rooted in customer needs, analyzing the TAM and sizing the opportunity, and our ability as Atlassian to service it based on our strengths. The long-term strategy helps to set what we call our North Star. At Atlassian, we specifically call it BHAG, big, hairy, audacious goals. And that top of the pyramid helps you with the one level down over there, which is basically annual planning. This is where the rubber hits the road from a strategy standpoint. It is a portfolio allocation exercise based on what we have set as our BHAG three years from now and the more operational improvement opportunities which we have identified at the very base level. And this basically helps us plan for the coming year and allocate resources accordingly. The BizOps team resides centrally as one function, but it is actually embedded with the different parts of the businesses, with the product heads. So if you think about it this way, if the head of the product is the CEO of the business, we like to think of BizOps as their COO counterpart. They help the CEO run faster and build better businesses around the products. 
Yeah, I think it's a great model and one that, you know, while it's unique in how you set it up, it's relevant for a lot of companies. And in the spirit of your team getting better business decisions faster, one thing we've talked about is the importance of having a framework to drive pricing decisions. Could you share a little bit more about what that is and why other companies need to have something like that? Sure. So the framework which has worked well for me and my team at Atlassian is something which is called DACI. And I believe it originated at some other company, but there are different versions of that which exist today. I strongly think that if correctly used, this can be very effective to make decisions, especially if they are complex ones with multiple variables and many different stakeholders. So, of course, it works great for pricing decisions, given how cross-functional pricing is. So I can explain both the way we define the framework and how we use it in practice. Would that be helpful? Definitely. The framework itself helps clearly define the roles and responsibilities of the teams involved. And especially, I mean, if it's a matrix organization, it's super important to know who is responsible for what. And that's essentially what the base of the framework does. So DACI, D-A-C-I, D stands for driver. Now, the driver is the person who is responsible for a decision to be made. This needs to be probably the most objective person in the project. It works best when there is one driver, just like a bus or a car has one driver. Typically, BizOps leads, so folks on my team, play the role of being a driver. The second one, A, is approver. Now, this person or set of people have the decision-making authority and will fund the resources to execute the decision. You can think of them as sponsors who have the most skin in the game. Decisions should not have more than three approvers in my mind. I think three is probably the limit. Two is pretty normal. Now C, which stands for contributors. This in my mind is the most crucial set of people. You can think about them as the brains of the decision. You know, these are the cross-functional subject matter experts who bring in the data and insights to help build out the options and hone out the pros and cons. Finally, I is informed. These are folks who need to know the decision is being made and it will impact their work streams. They are more than welcome to provide their inputs, but they should not feel hurt if they are not fully considered or reflected in the options. So that's the I. You can think about I as most of the other people who are not part of DAC. Having that framework in mind, we actually typically start any project with setting up the goals and get alignment from the approvers on the trade-off criteria if there is a close call which in most cases, it boils down to two really close options and it's a tough decision. Now, these in those cases will serve as our first principles. Next, the driver works closely with the contributors to build out potential options with the pros and cons and any associated data, be it historical data, analytical data, meaning from the analytics team or customer feedback, primary or secondary, right? So talking to the sales team or advocacy team or actually doing the first-hand customer research. Now, this works well using a collaborative workspace. And at Atlassian, of course, I mean, we end up using Confluence, but you could use Google Docs or Dropbox paper to bring all of the different teams together and collaborate on a common document. Once all of the information is on the page, the driver takes the final stab at honing the case and provides the top recommendation and starts getting alignment from the team before putting it up for approval. Typically, the pages are pretty well documented and they have all of the information and data and insights needed but it also helps to have approval meetings in person if an active dialogue is needed between the approvers once all of the facts have been put on the paper 
So this is the framework we typically use to help get data-driven decisions and to make them faster. And once the decisions are made, folks are aligned to it. And the page where the decision is made sort of serves as the single source of truth of what was the decision, what was the original problem, what were the options, what was the decision, and when was it approved. I think it's a really smart approach. And one thing I've observed is that at a lot of companies, there's not clear decision-making rights in terms of pricing. Everyone's involved, but (laughs) the roles are kind of unclear. People have different opinions, especially between the sales team, the marketing team, the finance team, the product team. Everyone has a different belief of what's right, but they're not working off of a similar data set. And there's not a clear process for capturing input, but then actually getting to decisions and moving forward and then keeping the results of those decisions sort of fresh and being able to monitor them over time. So I really like that approach. You've worked with a wide number of companies. Most SaaS companies sell mostly with the sales team. And as you mentioned, Atlassian is famous for more of a self-service and more open and transparent approach. At OpenView, we kind of call the Atlassian type of approach more of a product-led strategy. Mm -hmm. How has that kind of business influenced how you approach pricing? Yeah, that's a great question. So basically, you can think about it as in three tranches of companies, right? I'm companies who are mainly sales-led at one extreme. The other extreme probably is Atlassian, where it's mainly product-led. And then there are companies in the middle which have both self-serve and call-us option. Atlassian is a very high-volume business, so we can look at data and interpret that data to make decisions. The downside of not having sort of the salespeople giving their feedback and direct discussions and dialogues with the customer is you're losing some element of that customer feedback coming in. At Atlassian, we add that back in with having a really strong customer research team. And a lot of folks on my team are also trained to do customer research, but we work very closely with our customer research function within the company to reach out to customers and have those discussions. So I think that is one big difference. I think also, you know, in terms of final approval, a lot of the approval of these pricing changes then resides with the head of product. So the role of head of product is a little different in a company like Atlassian versus a company which has both a strong product leadership team and a strong sales leadership team. Because at Atlassian, there is no sales leadership team which carries a quota. So we still need to have uh, projected targets and forecasts which need to be reached. And it's the product head who's carrying that. Yeah, it's interesting to think through the different models. And I think that a lot of people probably listening are jealous of Atlassian's approach and probably wish that there wasn't a sales team to be interviewing and having to bring along and then having to enable and any changes. But I think you're also spot on that the flip side is that you might lose some of that connection with the customer and really close feedback. And you need to build another way to bring that feedback loop into making decisions. Absolutely. And one of the things which we do at Atlassian quite a lot is we actually end up dogfooding a lot of stuff which we have. So a lot of our customer feedback comes in forms of external Jira tickets. Customers can go on our forums and request features, request changes to them, improvements to them. Actually, that's another data point where given the volume, that gives us a lot of data points of inputs. So we actually augment our data analysis or the historical usage data with inputs through these, what we call it as Jack tickets, Jira tickets, and also, I mean, with a strong customer research and a customer advocacy team. I wanted to end on a couple of final questions for you. First is, what advice do you have for an entrepreneur or an operator who's working on their first pricing project? Like, what would you want to know if you were in their shoes? Yeah, I mean, first I would say, you really got to start with your overall company level strategy and philosophy. 
at a product level, what changes you make versus what are some of your beliefs at a philosophy level. So you need to set that and get that right. So I would say spend time to sort of hash it out, debate it out with your co-founders or with your leadership team than your board. The second one, I would say it's often more important how you charge than how much you charge. The price points can be changed and iterated over time, but how you charge for your product reflects a lot on how customers will perceive the value they are getting from the product and how you value your own product. And then lastly, pricing is a work in progress, right? So, I mean, irrespective of what you set as your first price point or price metric, it will evolve as your product and offerings evolve, as you sort of adapt to changing customer needs and the landscape. So you will have to tune your pricing to match that. So I would say build a strong discipline around pricing, probably have a steward within your company. Because I mean, as a CEO or as an entrepreneur, while in the initial parts, you might be wanting to do pricing yourself, it would be good to have a steward who is thinking through this as the company evolves. It's great advice. Totally agree. And then final question for you, what's one SaaS company that you admire from a pricing and packaging standpoint? There are a bunch of companies, depending on the different stages they are in. I'll give you three examples, right? One, in an early stage company, using pricing and all of the different levels of pricing to reflect the value they provide. I think Segment IO does a pretty good job at it. In the post-IPO phase where the product portfolio is built out and the market is well understood, I think HubSpot does a pretty good job. In terms of large companies with massive portfolios of product, LinkedIn does, I think, a really good job at pricing. And then Salesforce, I think, given the complexity of their portfolio and the segments of customers they sell into, I believe their pricing is pretty intuitive at that scale. Those are great examples and have some folks from some of those companies who will be joining the podcast. Abde, thanks so much for joining the OV Build podcast. Hey, thanks, Kyle, again. Thanks for tuning in to the Build Podcast. Make sure you subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or anywhere you listen to podcasts, and give us a five-star rating while you're at it. Outside of podcasts, we produce content daily on OpenView Labs. You can also follow us on Twitter at OpenView Venture and subscribe to our newsletter that's sent out to over 100,000 SaaS operators every Saturday morning by going to openviewpartners.com forward slash newsletter. Until next time, 